Hello, this is Saren's podcast. It has many great things in it. Beautiful women, great discussion. It also has swear words. So if you don't like that, just move on. From the kitchen table, this is Get Close Panic. Hello, I'm Saren. Nice to meet you, Liz. Hey, sir. Wow. Do you want me to lock this, Liz? I reckon it's just going to be a part of this. Quiet. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. Do you want a drink? I love a water. I just got completely overheated walking around. I know, sorry, I'm a bit disorganized as well. No. Actually, working till eleven o'clock last night, and then Whoa. Um, I was waiting for like freaking half an hour in the bl- bl- you know blistering sun yeah. for a bus. This is all left over from last night's board meeting. So. Is that why you're here until eleven? I wasn't here until eleven, but I was I had a board meeting till like eight, and then mm-hmm. I was talking with one of the board members on my front porch till about eleven. So yeah, no, work never ends. No, it's a funny. It's a funny thing, it's a funny industry because it's very blurred. Yeah. I mean, I was having a drink with my board member on the porch, it was nice. It's not like a like you know, you're still talking about work for three hours. Exactly, yeah. It's a really Let me tell you a very scary story with a very happy ending. Late last year I started looking for people to interview for my yet to be named podcast. Mostly this meant asking my friends to introduce me to people or reaching out to people I sort of knew. There were a small number of people, however, that I cold contacted. One of these people was this week's guest, CEO of Ace Open, Liz Knoll. Liz was one of the brave women who agreed to be involved with almost nothing to go on. She was warm and patient with me and her interview was really candid and human. She spoke with frankness about carving out a career for herself and taking her professional growth really seriously. After the interview, I saved and backed everything up and went home. A week later, I opened the recording and it was blank. Since then, I've been through the podcaster's nightmare of trying to imagine returning to a guest and asking them to record again, especially after what you will hear Liz and I talking about, which is that she has actually been through that experience before. So through my desperation not to seem like a dropkick, I reached out to everyone I know who's ever touched a computer and some people I don't know, including a Russian man called Ivan. On Tuesday this week, my genius aunt recovered the interview. So this episode is dedicated to her, as well as everyone else who offered me suggestions or patiently allowed me to roll around feeling sorry for myself. And it's an interview worth all that trouble. Liz is so sharp, driven and focused and the way she speaks about her career is unapologetically ambitious and confident. It's no wonder she's achieved so much for someone so young. I'll be back at the end of the interview with my usual nonsense. Until then, enjoy. Um, just ignore me. I'm going to tap this occasionally just to make sure I am recording. Yeah, I just did a podcast with someone recently who spoke for an hour and a half and was on fire and at the end they realised it hadn't been recording. So I had to do it all over again. <laughs> that is that is genuinely my worst nightmare yeah, yeah, yeah. in this situation. Because so, that's exactly what happened. They, <laughs> it went, the, 
Anyway, so it's good that you chat and shit. Anyway, it happens, whatever we can do. Well. Yeah, I guess so, but oh, I feel like I cry, but all right. Oh, um, it's more just like brain drained. Exactly. Like, well, how much to recreate that? Well, actually, I heard the finished one, which was recorded again, and like, I think in a way I thought it wasn't very good, but it was much more succinct, probably. Yeah. And I feel like in a way it was actually, it was good. I'm surprised. Well, but imagine how amazing the first one would have been. <laughs> blown out of the water. What podcast was it? Uh, it was, oh, I can't even remember now. Is it an essay one? Yeah, it was one, it was done at, um, oh, it was done at this collab space, I don't know. Okay. Like a co-work place. I've done so much media. I can't, I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, sorry. But you're well versed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good. All right, cool. Um, all right, so maybe just start off by introducing yourself so that I've got that sound bite for the podcast and then we'll go from there into the interview. Yeah. So just my name and what I do. Yeah, yeah, basically. My name's Liz Noel. I'm the CEO at Ace Open. Beautiful. Very succinct. I like it. Okay, um, so if it feels comfortable to you, I've just been finding that going chronologically through your working life is sure. the best way to go. So maybe starting from whatever point is relevant when you were younger, maybe just before you started working, um, where what you were interested in yeah. when you first started out and what your where your skills lay and, and where yeah. your opportunities lay. Yeah, so I never uh, wanted to be a curator or an art gallery director or work in the visual arts sector. When I say wanted, it's not that I wanted to or didn't want to. It was just never part of my plan. And throughout high school, I was always – I really excelled at drama and media studies. And so obviously I worked creatively, but art was not something – visual arts was not something I was very well versed in. Mm. And I ended up going to university, uh, Flinders University, when I was 18 and not – really knowing what I wanted to do. So I just did a Bachelor of Arts, or I shouldn't say just, I did a Bachelor of Arts majoring in drama and film and Aboriginal studies at the Younger Andy Centre there. And, yeah, I, I always pursued drama and film because it was what I was good at, but I sort of realised towards the end of that degree that I was not necessarily that passionate about it, particularly being working as an actor you know, it's such a huge rejection rate. You have to really want it. Um, and I just don't think I really wanted it. So I ended up working retail full-time and I was 21 at the time, so I'm 33 in a few days. So this was 12 years ago. And I fell into a huge um, hole, like depressive sort of, had a huge depressive episode and was still functioning and being able to go to work but was miserable didn't know what I wanted to do, didn't feel challenged, was getting knocked back for arts job after arts job. And then eventually I sort of got back on track through, you know, medical support and, and counselling and whatnot and um, saw a degree for art history advertised at the University of Adelaide. And I wasn't necessarily that interested, but it was run after hours and I decided that, I could work full-time in retail during the day and study at night and that I'd just try it and see if I enjoyed it. And, you know, I was vaguely interested in art, I'm interested in politics, I'm interested in theatre, I'm interested in history. So it was a sort of beautiful amalgamation of all of those things. 
So I enrolled in art history and in a graduate diploma at the University of Adelaide and spent a year doing that and um, that was kind of the, I guess, the birth of um, the genesis of my career in the arts and the visual arts. Mm. So before we kind of launch into that next stage, I'm just wanting to remain conscious in the in the interviews of the sorts of things that you feel like were your leg ups in on your way to where you are now yeah. and also the things that you feel like were real hurdles. Yeah. Yep. I think um, you know, I think the lesson for me in all of that was um, I think it's really important to be open to trying different things and not necessarily what you thought you'd end up doing and just being open to that and it's it's easy to say that when you're you know a white middle class woman from Adelaide and you rack up a hex debt yeah but and you can afford to but I do think it's worth being um really open to what you may you know where you may discover your strengths or your passions because pretty quickly after getting into that degree I realized that you know I was actually really passionate about the visual arts and it was a language I understood really well the hardest the hardest thing I think about my career and my trajectory is that um, it's it's super, super competitive, small industry. I don't mean competitive in a nasty way, but a lot of people want to work in the arts and it's really hard to get there. But I was very fortunate that I started when I was extremely young, um, really. I mean, that degree now is very popular and a lot of people are getting to 26, 27, deciding they want to pursue curating. And I, it's become quite, um, quite a sort of very fashionable sort of job, I think. And even when I was that age, you know. And so I think getting a, you know, getting a sort of leg up into the hardest thing is breaking into the industry and getting that first job. And that was obviously why I got this sort of first bout of depression in the first place because I just couldn't get a job in the arts. And it was because my skills were so broad and I didn't have a whole lot of experience and I had an arts degree, which is, as many listeners would know, very broad. <clears throat> so doing art history combined with, you know, my retail experience meant that I was able to get a job in a commercial gallery. And I think you have to start at the bottom you know, you really do. It's a pecking order and you have to start from the bottom and work your way up, which, again, is why I feel very lucky that I started young because I can't imagine being 20, 26 or 27 now in a very low-level sort of job, you know, having come from a previous career and having to work your way up, but you kind of have to. And particularly in art, I feel that there is a real hierarchy and, you know, it's about earning your way into that those other positions. It's about, you know, demonstrating to the community and the sector your commitment to it and, and the track record of your work and the consistency of your work. Mm-hmm. So being able to get that first foot in the door and just continually build on that, I think, is, you know, probably the hardest thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that first job at, after your um, grad did. Yeah. How long were you in that? Role? Three months. It was a. I was working for a horrible man, a commercial gallerist who will remain nameless, but he was a bully and was nasty. And very quickly, within my first day, really of getting there, I knew I didn't want to stay. Yeah. And um, 
So I essentially immediately started applying for other jobs. So I went through that job for three or four months and then I went to Country Arts SA for probably only five months as well, a short period of time. It was a great job, but there's a lot of regional travel, servicing all the regional galleries, and it was quite taxing. And then an opportunity came up at Tandania uh, in the city as a curator there of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art, and that was really my first significant job. So it was probably only nine months after I left university I was appointed curator with very little experience of, you know, quite a large gallery with a sizable budget. I was probably about 23 at the time, but it was only a maternity leave contract, which is why I think I got it. I took the risk knowing it was a short-term contract and that there wouldn't be as many applicants. But as it turned out, I stayed on for three years. Yeah, right. Okay. So how was that getting into that role feeling like well, maybe you're a little inexperienced or... Um, yeah, it was, you know, it was daunting but super exciting. Yeah. And it was... I had an amazing boss mm-hmm. who really let me cut my teeth and let me make mistakes and let me ask questions and let me work on projects I was passionate about. And I learnt so much um, from the most mundane things you know, that's required of curators from kind of freight to logistics to the most, you know, exciting of things to, you know, dreaming up big shows and um, and presenting them and working with incredible artists. So for me, that was a really amazing, um, you know, a really amazing opportunity to learn. And I was there for about three years and it was towards the end of my second year that, we were approached by the Adelaide Festival and Paul Grabowski was the artistic director at the time and he asked me to curate a big show and I proposed to curate a show by an artist collective called Proper Now who were Murray's, Brisbane-based artists um, working in, in Brisbane City. But as artists, they were very much uh, widely connected to the broader Australian art world. So having the opportunity, and they were really my earliest mentors. They were very senior artists, people like Richard Bell and Vernon Aki, who are the best of the best in Australia, Tony Albert, um, and through them they they gave me a lot of tough love through the process, but they really mentored me. Um, And they have huge personalities, and I mean that in the best way, and um, they're incredibly intelligent, astute people, and so they were tough on me, but... I really relished that and I learnt a lot from them. So that was, I guess, my first major project mm. in the sort of broader Australian art world that had a lot of a lot of people sort of know about that project and it was quite significant and that was how I was able again to branch out. And I think, you know, reflecting on that, I've always been quite strategic. I've tried to be strategic with the jobs that I take in the positions I apply for, but I've also, I think it's also important to know your limits. Um, You know, a few years ago I was told to apply for a job for an organisation which has got 50 staff, and I just thought, that's ridiculous, you know, I'm not at that level yet. It's very nice of you to think that I'm capable of doing that, but that would be ludicrous for me to get, I mean, I probably could do it, but, you know, 
like it'd be a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Like I'm not. I need to go. I need to be strategic mm. and um, measured about what what positions I take and what steps I take yeah. Yeah. Um, in my career. And I think that's and always moving forward. Mm. That's been really important mm. for me. And I feel that I've always done that in one way or another with my career since I started. Mm. Good. Um, so after that first really big show, um, you were. Th- Still in the same. I was in Adelaide. Yeah, I actually took three months off and went and lived in a monastery in Nepal, and um, went and spent some time in the states. And but then I I moved back and I was I've been at Tanzania for probably two and a half three years, and I was applying for a lot of jobs interstate, and that was a really I really wanted to get get out of Adelaide, and that was a really tough time because. I was just, the challenge had been lost on me. Like, I felt I'd done everything I could do in that job. Uh, it wasn't that I was unhappy there. It was a great team. Like I said, my, my director was incredible. But I was just not challenged anymore in myself. Mm. But I spent about six months applying for jobs in state and no one knew me in state. And I tell you what, it's really, um, it really, it's, you know, it's really depressing and tough constantly getting job rejections and I've been fortunate enough at that point in my career to get very few I just jobs had sort of managed to come well not come to me but I've been really successful with applying and getting jobs so to be rejected from probably about 20 jobs was really soul-crushing but eventually I got a job um, in Sydney at a regional gallery Mm -hmm. which is about 45 minutes out of Sydney and I think moving to Sydney was probably the best decision I've ever made in my life. Yeah. So talk a little bit about um, feeling like you need to get out. Yeah, I mean, I think I wonder, I often reflect on whether or not I feel like that had I grown up in New York or grown up in Sydney like or grown up in Perth. I had never felt that I'd really accomplished much with my life, even though I already sort of by the age of 25 had a fairly you know, stable career in comparison to my friends and quite a successful career, but it kind of meant nothing because I hadn't really felt that I'd flown the coop and that I'd travelled enough overseas and um, I felt quite suffocated in Adelaide and I know a lot of people here. My brother knows a lot of people. We're quite a well-known, you know, we're quite well-known because we're quite social within our community and I just felt that I needed to challenge myself and not just with work but challenge who am I outside of the comfort of what I've always known. And I think, you know, smaller cities or any small community or even maybe a large one where you're quite insular can be really dangerous. You learn to relate to people and exist in relation to that community and in relation to that world. And that can be, I think that can be quite dangerous in terms of your own development and your own growth as a person. So I really felt that I just needed to leave Adelaide and um, spread my wings and test myself. Mm -hmm. And also the reality is there's very few jobs here. Um, There's very few. So, you know, that was definitely a part of my thinking as well. So what was it like working in Sydney? It was amazing. I was really lucky. Um, my four, four of my best friends already lived there. Um, so 
all from Adelaide. So I had my four dearest people in Melbourne, uh, in Sydney, sorry. But uh, the job itself had its challenges for different reasons. Um, I was spending two hours a day in the car. The director and I had a different vision because the, the director actually that hired me left shortly after. And so a new director came in and, you know, there was a lovely woman but just very different visions. Um, but moving to Sydney was fantastic because I was able to – my world just opened up. My art – the art world just opened up to me. I felt very embraced by the community. I had um, – you know, instantly had a sort of reason to meet these people as a curator. So I very much, very quickly got embedded sort of in the community. And it just, you know, going to Sydney opened up the world to me, not just Sydney. It actually opened up the art world to me. And I, you know, there were things that were able to happen. There are things that have subsequently happened in my life that I don't believe would have happened had I stayed in Adelaide. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So how long were you in that job for? I was there for two years mm -hmm. and I I actually made the pretty dramatic decision to quit without another very stable job to go to. Okay. I was unfulfilled there curatorially, like artistically, creatively, and I had decided I had teed up some work with a number of artists working on projects with them, which was quite an unusual, quite an unusual thing in Australia. Artists don't really have managers. Yeah. They have gallerists, but they don't really have one-on-one -on -one managers. I actually became an artist manager. So I managed Alex Seaton's studio for a year, but I managed Tony Albert's studio for three years. And what did that involve? Well, with Tony, for example, he was awarded a $500,000 public art commission to create a monument honouring Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Hyde Park in Sydney. So I worked on that as, you know, project managing for years. He had a solo show at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, so I coordinated all of that. I worked on logistics. I helped him, you know, just in the development of his work, applying for grants, um, organising his diary, liaising with other curators, um, it's a really unconventional job in the Australian art market because it's so small. Most, a lot of overseas artists have managers. They have some of them have staff of 40, 50 people. In Australia, it's such a luxury to have a manager. People, whenever I said oh, I manage artist studios, people were like, they didn't. They were like, what? What does that entail? Because it wasn't really a job in Australia. I'd say there's five artists in Australia that have managers. So. Yeah. so that was really interesting, but Tony and I developed a really, really exceptionally close working relationship, which has continued on. But he also gave it, it gave me the flexibility to do other things that I was more passionate about, um, not as opposed to him, but more passionate about for my own sort of development. So one of the reasons I left Hazelhurst was I felt very institutionalised through my career, which at that stage had only been about six years. But I wanted to get back. I never did... I never volunteered in the NARI. I never really knew the visual arts community in Adelaide because I worked in Aboriginal art here. So I felt like I needed to start back at the beginning and know the artists, know my community. So what I actually did was I managed Tony's studio and then I co-directed a festival 
called Safari, which was a very well-known grassroots visual arts festival run in Sydney every two years. And basically I did that on a volunteer basis full-time for two years. But I worked with 26 artists across Australia, eight, eight venues in Sydney, you know, stakeholders across council, state government, um, my board, and so it really embedded my position in the Sydney art sector. It really allowed me to connect with people um, and make lifelong friendships and working relationships, which continue today. So I, you know, it was a really, I think, in hindsight, it was a risky move financially, but it it really cemented my place within our sector, I think. Yeah. 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 And after that? After that, I, I, I did other things. I lectured throughout that Sydney College of the Arts. I ended up picking up lecturing work. And it was amazing when you kind of put yourself out there and said, I'm freelance now, the kind of work that would come up and opportunities. I was able to write more. So through all of this and through Tony, I ended up meeting a woman called Maura Riley, who is the sort of preeminent um, feminist curator in the world. She founded the Sackler Centre for Feminist Art at the Brooklyn Art Museum 10 years ago. And I met her through Tony and through other friends. She's a New Yorker. She actually came and lived with me in Sydney for three months and is, you know, like a sister to me now. But through her, I was able to get a sort of four-month research, volunteer research position at the Brooklyn Museum. So I ended up moving to New York for four months um, in mid-2015 and I worked on a research project for the Sackler Centre where I um, I sort of researched the history of feminism throughout the institution. I rewrote the history of the institution through a feminist lens from the start of inception, which was I think 1850 or something, to current day. Wow. Yeah. So a really big project to do in such a short period of time. Well, I didn't do it in its entirety. I did all the preliminary research. On yeah. It. yeah. So, yeah, so I did that for four months in America. And so, again, that's, I guess my point is the, you know, being in Sydney and being at the sort of the capital of Australia. I know it's not, but, you know, yes, yeah. having that much more transient population met, meant that I was constantly meeting people that were more connected to the global art world. But I also think throughout my career, when I look at opportunities that have come my way, it's been through building relationships. And my sector is probably one of the more personal, where that the boundaries between the personal and professional are very blurred. And my career is kind of my life, which is it's who I socialise with. It's what I talk... I run a very... A sort of flexible working arrangement here because we go to openings all the time my staff we're having dinner with people on the weekend which is you know kind of your friends but kind of work it's a very blurred space and I think what's been successful for me is building relationships and and opening up people and welcoming them into my life not just my work so you know, with Maura, um, just letting her live with us for three months at the time she needed somewhere to live. And, you know, that relationship has 
sort of trans transpired into a personal relationship, but also one where we will probably work together at various points throughout our lives. Yeah. So I think sort of breaking those boundaries down between the personal and professional, you still need to maintain them to a point, but also being being transient in that, that fluid in that sort of space mm. has been really beneficial in, for me in terms of um, identifying other opportunities and making other connections. Yeah. 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 And increasingly it seems like that's the case in so many sectors. Does it? Really. I wouldn't know because yeah. I'm so – my head's so in the arts industry. Like yeah. I often wonder if more corporate sectors are like that or – I think I think more and more jobs now are expecting your um, your life to, to blur into your work and for it to be kind of a lived thing. So – I mean it's so challenging. Even yeah. our social media, like – you know, I'm having this really interesting tug of war with myself at the moment about my social media as a CEO and a representative of ACE, but also as a person that exists within the world yes. and that's just a 33-year-old woman trying to live her life, yeah. you know. So I think it's a really interesting how – and it's interesting to hear you say you think it's in other sectors because I don't know any other sector. Yeah. But I think that blurring between personal and professional is really amazing and also really problematic. Yeah. Like, yeah. I check my email the first thing when I wake up. I check it the last thing I go to bed. I'm yeah. always on call. But at the same time, that means I can, you know, leave work 20 minutes early if I need to go to an appointment or, you know, come in 10 minutes late or yeah. it's... Yeah, it's it's hard. And, I mean, when, when in, you know, a case like yours, the people that you're having lunch with are the people that you you personally as a human being want to have lunch with yeah. and want to talk to and these are things you want to talk about that also happens to be work yeah that works really well yeah but yeah more generally as a as a phenomenon mm. it's it's confusing it is I, I think it's going to be a more and more of a challenge I think so in the workforce and particularly with more corporate like the arts is terribly um under deregulating that sense, like there's not a lot of, you know, generally across the board, we're not the most um, unionised or kind of, you know, policy-driven policy industry in terms of our workplaces. We all work for not enough money and too much time yeah. on the smell of an oily rag for the love of it. So I feel like it's kind of been that it's, it's accepted in the arts, that's how it goes. Yeah. But it's partly because of technology as well that this is changing and... Yeah. Um, Partly, I think, because of social media as well, and we're looking for more. Um, we're looking for authenticity in people now as a way of buy-in. I think, yeah, to what we we look for in in colleagues and people that we work with. Um, but yeah, it's interesting, and I think the more now, you know, as a CEO now as a director, um, that just becomes even more the or more so the case, you know, yeah. in terms of that blur, because I'm much more visible now in my job than. I was, you know, three or four years ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I don't think that there are any any pre-existing rules or mm -hmm. thoughts about how best to navigate that at all. It's just all of us kind of groping around in the dark trying yeah. to figure out what works yeah. best and what people yeah. perceive best yeah. and what works best for us. Yeah, and you have to have boundaries and know what those boundaries are. I love um, a few weeks ago I was at an opening and it was like the week before my opening at work for the current show next matriarch and the opening here at ACE was on a Saturday afternoon and a director this said, said to me, someone said to me, this director, I, I'm not, I can't come on Saturday. 
to the opening, good luck. I'll come in and see the show. I have a rule, no shows on openings on Saturday. And I thought, good on you. Yeah. I actually was like, I'm. that is wonderful. Yeah. I wish I, I need to start having a few boundaries like that. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Give yourself yeah. a day off. That's yeah, like, thing. I mean, I, there are things I do and don't go to, but having those really clear yeah, rules is, I think, you have to have personal boundaries. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So after you got back from New York, yeah, the next? Well, I was actually, so I was appointed to the Contemporary Arts Centre of South Australia as the executive director before I went to New York. Oh, okay. So I was actually appointed, like, March 2015. Yeah. But I moved to New York in May and moved back in November. So very quickly after moving back to Sydney, I packed up and moved to Adelaide, which is two years ago now. Yeah. Nearly. It'll be nearly two years to the day in another week or so. Yeah. What happened in terms of the decision to apply for a job back in... Yeah, I think that's a really good question, Sarah, because... Most people think it's really odd that I come back to Adelaide and I actually came back to Adelaide as a career move, Yeah. which for no other reason, of course, I'm so happy to be with my family and friends, but I came back here, it was a strategic career choice. Yeah. I was in Sydney for five years in total. Mm-hmm. I moved back here because the Contemporary Arts Centre of South Australia and now ACE is a member of a national network called KO, which is Contemporary Arts Organisations Australia. And there's about, I think there's at the moment 14 members. There's been a bit of change because of funding cuts. But essentially every state and territory is represented in the network and it's independent contemporary arts organisations, non-collecting, government-funded, and we, you know, it's organisations like Gertrude Contemporary in Melbourne, Art Space in Sydney, the IMA in Brisbane. And CAPSA, and at the time the Experimental Art Foundation, also in Adelaide, were two members. And I knew that I was too green in my career to ever get a job. Well, there'd be too many other well-qualified people, and there's currently amazing people in the roles at Gertrude and Art Space, for example. Yeah. I knew it would be difficult for me to get a job in the eastern states in in a, an institution of, at that level, yeah. respected at that level. Maybe as a curator I might have been able to work in that space but not as a director. And so when the job came up here, I really felt that I was a good candidate for it because I it was, a man, it was manageable. The resourcing I felt was manageable for me and that comes back to what I was saying before about knowing your limits. Yeah. I felt that it was... A manageable job at that point in my career, a challenge, but a good job in a good way, and I felt that it would enable me to position myself in a senior role within Australian art context. But that having the knowledge of Adelaide and being off here and from here, well, not off here, but being you know spending most of my life within the age of six or seven. And also having all those connections nationally and internationally meant that I'd be well positioned for the job and that hopefully I'd be successful to be able to bring something to that role. So it was very much driven by, um, you know, I don't think I'll be in Adelaide forever. I could be wrong, but I don't know what other jobs that there will be for me after this year. Mm. I'd like to stay. I really am enjoying living here. But it was very much driven by it was my move back here was a career move. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, 100%. Okay. And what was moving into that role like at that point? Oh, it was okay. It was really politicised and there was so much um, toxicity and gossip within the sector and speculation around the future of CAPSA and ETH. Okay. And there's a lot of talk with national funding cuts. Mm. And I was very naive to what I was really getting into, although on some level I don't think I could have fully anticipated what I was stepping into, but I have learned now when I apply for another job to really ask tough questions yeah. about the future. And So, yes, within four months of getting into the job, we were told that our funding had been cut from the Australia Council and we were essentially forced into an amalgamation with the Experimental Art Foundation. Um, so it was, you know, incredibly taxing and stressful and, you know, the most difficult thing I've ever really had to do. What did you, um, I know you can't really, were you working for Caps or Yeah. Caps yeah. So what did you feel like you guys had to sacrifice at Caps in that, um, in that loss when those cuts were Well, made? I mean, we had to sacrifice all our staff. Okay. Like, and that was the same with the Eve. Yeah. I mean, everyone... Everyone had to lose. I mean, we had to turn two organisations into one. Yeah. And so we had to sacrifice 75 years of history. We had to sacrifice the staff. And at that point, that included me. There was no, there was no sort of deals done. It was everything got spilt and everything had to be done transparently and mm. fairly and right up until the last minute, really, because, like, the process you have to go through for amalgamation is we had to get permission for membership. There's a lot of legalities because we were, we were incorporated. and So by the time it got really – everyone's contracts were up at December 31st and it wasn't until December that the CEO, early December, even mid-December, the CEO of the new organisation, which is now ACE, was appointed so really and of course I imagine a lot of the staff would have been I can only speculate thinking about their future job relations opportunities in relation to who was going to be appointed the director yeah okay so not that I'm saying that you know whoever it was would necessarily hire or the staff back or whatever, but I imagine that everyone everyone wanted to know who the CEO would be because that would really determine the future yeah. of the organisation. Yeah. Not just in terms of staff, but in terms of direction. Yeah. But it wasn't until about three weeks before the end of the year that, you know, I was appointed. Yeah. So it was a really stressful year personally. I'd moved back to Adelaide. I'd gone through a really difficult relationship breakup mm. and you know, within sort of days of moving back to Adelaide. So that was really weighing on my mind. And then to my whole life had been also built around my career and to think that I'd come back to Adelaide and then I might be out of a job and I'd sort of lost, you know, things that ended with my long-term partner and I just thought, well, who, like who am I? Like if, I, if I'm not this person's partner, if, I, if I'm not this director and I'm back in Adelaide, what, living with my parents at yeah. 32 years old, like, 
Oh, it's pretty grim. Yeah, absolutely. That was kind of what was running through my mind for that year. Yeah. And did it take that weight off your mind when you were appointed? Was yeah. It, it did? Yeah, yeah, it was. And I felt really honoured because I, the in the end, the process was so transparent. Mm-hmm. The, the selection board was independent. You know, it was all done above board. So I feel that I, I applied for and earned that job, was appointed to that job fair and square. Mm-hmm. And what was really amazing was the whole process of the amalgamation. The staff of both orgs and the boards were incredible. Mm. You know, it must be said. It's extra- and I'm saying this was my stress. Everyone had the same stress. Yeah. It was horrible. Yeah. But it was also really amazing mm. the way that the community galvanised around the two organisations, but the way that the boards worked together. No, everyone put egos aside, mm. just said we have to get the best outcome for the state. Yeah. You know, that's all that, it's not about saving anyone's bacon, it can't be. It's not about, you know, keeping anyone in a certain positions on boards or what, it has to be for the greater good for the state and for yeah. the community. Yeah. And seeing that process unravel and unfold so quickly and efficiently and fairly and transparently was actually incredible, mm. you know, really amazing. So it was a weird time because it was on one hand really scary and, extremely stressful but on the other hand it was kind of as good as that kind of situation could have been could have been yeah yeah and what was your starting from that point really and kind of almost starting with something new Mm. as much baggage and kind of history as it had how was it coming into that role oh you know it's been a year now my so I kept my cats a general manager on initially in a short-term contract because we had no staff and there was so much to do. Yeah. So we walked in here on the 16th of January this year, 2017. We didn't have a bank account. We didn't have a name. I mean, we had nothing. We had a building. We didn't really have a program. And we were expected to have a show up within, I think it was within six weeks of that. So... We had a budget, we had a building, we had a board, which was a transient board because some people had sort of stepped, like had just gone through a pit because we had to amalgamate the two boards. Yeah. Um, and it was really full on but really exciting. And I think I went overseas two weeks after we walked into the office on a work trip that I'd already planned, that had been planned and paid for. So... Um, the amount of work that we had to do, hiring staff, um, coming up with a name, a brand, a vision statement, a strategic plan, a program, applying for funding. I mean, it, the mind boggles yeah. at what has been achieved this year. Yeah. Um, it's been amazing. Yeah. It's been full on, but in the best possible way. Yeah. And you must feel such a sense of ownership. I, I do. I'm, you know, I was saying to someone only the other day, I'm so invested in the organisation. Mm. I mean, the organisation is not me. It's not one personality at all. But for now, there's still so much work to do to get it to where it needs to be. Yeah. And the future feels very optimistic yeah. and exciting and we've got great momentum and support. Yeah. But there's still a lot to be done. I, I don't think I realised how much... I knew how much there'd be to do, but I don't think I realise, like, it's going to take a while. We're really, it's going to take four or five years to really become the organisation that we want to be. Yeah. I think 
probably somewhere deep down I thought it might take a year, but change takes time. Mm. Building capacity takes time. Yes. So I'm really invested in it for now to get it to where it needs to be. Mm. And, um, yeah, I'm really lucky I have such an amazing team and, you know, I don't really feel like I did anything. Like, they have been so incredible. So I'm very, very fortunate. Like, I've got work with amazing people and, you know, have just gone above and beyond this year. So, yeah, it's been a very interesting time. Yeah. So we're drawing into a bit of a close, but before we do... What what is your, I mean, pick a relevant period of time, but say what's your week like now in your job? What does that look like? Yeah, uh, just meetings and thinking. <laughs> That's been the hardest thing about my job, I think, was like because I've historically worked as a curator, mm. even though I'm reluctant to call myself that. And even at CACSA, the team was much smaller. There was only three of us, and we were winding operations down, essentially, within four months of me getting there. So I'm quite – I'm used to being more task-oriented, but I've I've found now the bigger the team and our capacity, like, I really want to empower my staff. I don't want to micromanage anyone, and I really want them to have their own creative um, control and autonomy. Thank you, autonomy in their job. So – for me, like, I feel that my job is just supporting them as best as I can and creating the right conditions for them to sort of flourish. Mm. And so I feel that my work, I hate being at my desk. Mm. Um, or I don't hate it, but I'm just, I'm much more, I prefer a much more dynamic work environment, like in and out and meetings. And I sometimes go work at a cafe for a little bit and, you know, um, and then, you know, and I have that same sort of attitude with my staff. But my week is my week's main now uh, meeting with people mm-hmm. and trying to, you know, build partnerships and talk about collaborating and meeting with staff and also thinking. Mm-hmm. So, which sounds silly, but I feel like I spend a lot of time just talking to people and thinking and trying to get all the moving parts working together. Mm-hmm. Um and that's where a lot of, I think, the mental energy is quite, for me, is, you know, that's probably, it's less task-oriented now and more about sort of that, that mental energy that I invest into thinking about the future and what we need to do. So meanings and thinking, really. And, you know, still a lot of grant writing and yeah. um, talking, like meeting with stakeholders, really, whether that's board members or artists or other curators, um, you know, wine sponsors, everything. It's really, really sort of talking to stakeholders and and at this stage early on in the organisation really trying to tell people about ACE and what our plans are and get people involved, you know. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Many thanks to Liz for the amazing interview and again to my auntie for making the amazing interview audible. To my brother, uh, to Chris from By the Glass for being so empathetic with me um, and to my friends and family, again, for tolerating me. Um, If you guys have any questions about the podcast, anything about Liz, anything at all, just reach out to us on our social and, as usual, like and follow us in all the right places and rate us on iTunes because apparently that's something else that I should be asking for. I'll see you guys next Friday. Until then, I've been Saren Bell. This has been Gate Clues Panic.
See you next week.